Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. listening to the Companion Gundog Podcast. I'm your host, Grayson Dyer, and with me as always is Emily Shirey. How you doing, Emily? Hey, Grayson. I'm doing well. How are you doing? Good. We will uh, retrieve and water uh, program in the early summer, and uh, I've spent a lot of time with my kid in August, and um, he's been sick a lot because he's a toddler, and that just <laughs> tends to be what, what our trend is. And so we spent more time at home than I was hoping. I was hoping to get out a little more, uh, but didn't, but did get a lot of work done around the house. Um, did get some work done with my dogs that never seemed to get any work done. And, uh, and now I'm really excited because, uh, Wednesday of this coming week, everything just opens wide up again. Everybody brings their dogs. It's going to be crazy. The kennels will be full and we'll be back full tilt boogie. Um, so looking forward to that and, uh, anything you got coming up in the near future? Um, I've got some HRC hunt tests with the girls coming up. HRC hunt test with the girls. That's cool. Mm -hmm. What's HRC stand for? Hunting retriever club. So it's the UKC's, uh, version of retriever hunt tests. Cool. What girls are we talking about here? Blitz and Ember. That's cool. I think there's one more girl that you'll be handling. Oh. Miss Althea. That's right. So Emily's going to be handling uh, my retriever duties um, this coming uh, this coming season. I'll be um, grinding it out with uh, with the pointing dogs, versatile and otherwise. And uh, Emily uh, has has kind of taken on some new challenges in in the dog training world, um, namely uh, retriever training stuff and and some HRC tests to come. So that's always fun. Um, we've been playing with some odor work with Ember as well, which has been a lot of fun on our downtime. Um, uh, Althea has not enjoyed it nearly as much <laughs> as Ember has, but she's, she's not bad. You know, it's, it's, they've all got a, they've all got a little bit of talent in that regard, but Ember's really a fireball and a great little detection dog. And, um, you know, I think that kind of, uh, flows right into what today's podcast is going to be. And it's going to be retrievers and overview similar to the pointing dog overview uh podcast we did uh this one will be a little less focused because um i'm not quite as tied to retrievers as i am to pointing dogs professionally and therefore i'm not quite as tied as to to systems um as i am uh with the pointing dogs professionally so uh, i've got some opinions but but I also yield to a lot of other folks when it comes to retrievers it's not my bread and butter it's not something um that I, that I, you know, let, uh, my family's livelihood ride on is my kind of work I do with retrievers, but I love them and I enjoy the dog training aspects in all regards. And I think, um, all of the retriever breeds, uh, are, are fun to train and fun to be around. We're going to speak mostly to labs because that's what we have around, but we'll discuss a little bit of the other retriever breeds. Um, but really when we say retrievers, you know, you can just kind of, 
uh, insert whichever chessy, golden, flat, curly lab. Uh, maybe not so much the Nova Scotia tolling retrievers. They just, I, I'm, I don't have any experience with them whatsoever. I've never even trained one for pet work. Have you ever had one in for anything? No. I think somebody yeah. called me about one one time, but yeah, I mean, they may be fantastic natural retrievers and engage the way when I think of, you know, Chessie's Labs and, and others the way they do. But I, something in, uh, in, in my, the back of my head says they're probably not exactly the same type of dog, uh, from a mentality perspective. And so, you know, um, not that, not that I'm leaving them out. I just won't be speaking to them specifically. Really though, for us, we're going to talk a ton about labs, talk a lot about training. We're going to talk a little bit about the history. I don't want to overstep my bounds. I'm going to talk about things I have an interest in, some opinions on. I am by no means the authority on any of the things I'm going to speak about today. I've just been very lucky to uh, to have been exposed to, exposed to some some serious retriever people and uh, and some historians of the breed to some extent, uh, and also just friends that I consider to be top of the food chain retriever trainers. And I think I've been around some of the top of the food chain retrievers in general. So um, so that's kind of where we're heading with this today, Emily. Um, I I really. Uh, I'm excited to kind of see you taking off with Ember and, and, uh, retrievers in general. And, and, um, I, I think that that's going to add an entire new perspective, uh, to what you've already done as a trainer. So, um, please feel free to interject here wherever you wish as we go forward with this one. Sure. So I, I guess one thing I'd like to say, if, you know, our, I'm assuming that most of the people listening to this are going to be pointing dog people And I know that labs in general have quite a reputation with pointing dog people, and that is that they don't like them. (laughs) And I can say I was very much the same prior to meeting Grayson. I was a pet dog trainer and worked with a ton of pet labs, and they are not my cup of tea. Um, And so, yes, I was one of those people who made fun of labs and thought they weren't good for anything. And then I met Althea and I was like, what is this? This is nothing like the big, overweight, obnoxious, entitled, annoying pet labs that I've worked with on a regular basis. And so if you're out there listening to this and you think that you don't like labs, but you have never been exposed to really good working, hunting or British labs, at least try to have an open mind about it. And um, if it's something that even mildly interests you, find a really good lab breeder and go spend some time with them because, man, that it's totally game-changing, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I, I think what you're describing there is how uh, labs have become and are kind of victims of their own success as a breed. They are... Um, I I think they're still at the top of the list and I haven't checked. Yeah. I mean, I think they're still the most popular breed, um, in the AKC. Uh, so, you know, as far as registered purebred dogs Mm -hmm. go in this country, there's more labs than any other type. Um, and, and I think that's for good reason. I think they lend themselves to just being, uh, top notch companions. Mm -hmm. That being said, there's a lot of uncontrolled breeding most yes, likely going absolutely. on out there. So we have a lot of probably just kind of 
willy-nilly breeding for profit um for color for color oh yeah for color and i won't i'm not even going to get into that guys you guys are (laughs) welcome to go follow the rabbit down the hole as far as the dilute gene is concerned and it's kind of been the flavor of the decade maybe um for labs uh but an easy Google of dilute lab Mm. and that'll get you whatever you want to see on the internet. But yeah, I mean, it's just, there's a, there's a myriad of reasons people may or may not be breeding labs out there. And, uh, I think for us, performance is, is always, or at least for me, performance is at the top of the list. And even though labs and retrievers in general are probably, and not probably, they are far and away, the most popular breed or game in town as far as sporting, hunting, field trial, hunt test, enthusiast, hobbyist type games are concerned. It's still probably a, a drop in the bucket compared to the pet market oh, and, and what's out there being bred for, for pets. Yeah. And, and, and not, I don't want to, I don't want to come off as too disparaging on this, but the, the show market as well. There's a lot of show yep. line, labs out there and, and show line dogs of many other breeds out there um, that are being bred without performance in mind. And I think there's this um, a lot, there are a lot of opinions about confirmation as it relates to performance. I am and will always be strictly a form follows function type of person. Absolutely. And so I like, I like the culture that surrounds certain breeds and even in labs, I think there's a cool, like a dual purpose contingent out there that's trying really hard uh, to, to maintain a high performance standard with a high show standard or a high confirmation standard. That, that said, I think you're always in some sort of compromise there when you're, when you're doing that. And, Absolutely. Um, and that, and with my EBs, that's, that's the case. The one cool thing about the EBs is they are, in the FCI, at least, they are 100% a a dual breed. So there's not a different performance line. So in order to enter the show ring, dogs have to have some degree of performance and and step on the the performance field. They have to meet the confirmation standard. And so that kind of ensures that you keep them running parallel to one another. It's a little, um, I'd say uh, probably a little more hands-on, breed policing in Europe than there is in the States. And so, uh, you know, that's subject to change with popularity within the United States. Just, we're not, we're not into that as much as they are and, uh, for better or worse. So with labs, you know, for us, when we talk about them, whether we're talking about, and we're going to discuss a lot of like the American versus the UK type breeding and genetics. Um, but when we're discussing those, we're talking about performance dogs, primarily. And so whether we're talking about, we're going to talk about the differences a lot in compare and contrast, uh, quote unquote, British dogs, uh, versus American dogs, not maybe not versus, but and American dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but as far as I'm concerned, and I, and I hope you guys out there understand that they are much more similar than they are different when you compare them to pet, to dogs. pet dogs or show dogs, yep. right? So we're talking performance dogs, whether they be American field trial, hunt test, or UK field trial lines mm-hmm. or working lines, they are primarily bred for how they perform in the field. And so I would much rather, um, if I'm going to, uh, to toe the line between two worlds, I think I'm towing, I'm towing a much finer line between, uh, the, the UK 
field labs and the American field labs than I would be talking about pet or um, sure. show breedings. Yeah. Um, so, so I guess before I go too far in that direction with it, I do want to uh, follow our show notes. So as always, if you're interested in kind of keeping up with um, with the conversation here, you can go to our show notes at my website uh, and it'll be right there under where you find the podcast on my website. And I want to start talking about just general retriever history. Uh, I'm not going to waste a bunch of time on this, namely because um, Craig Koshik and Jennifer Wapinski have done it so much better than I ever could. So if you go to the Hunting Dog Confidential podcast and you check out episodes 7 through 10, there is a very comprehensive history of retrievers and retriever breeds um, going way back in uh, in history, if you will. So, um, I I can't say enough good about that. I I will just talk about kind of just briefly cover, uh, what's pertinent to me about the history. Um, but other than that, man, just, just head over there and listen. So historically we know, um, that the Labrador retriever kind of originated as a dog known as the St. John's water dog. And I believe, uh, that was in Newfoundland, uh, Canada. And, um, from there, uh, kind of was exported to the world. But I think what's pertinent about or, or relevant to this conversation about those dogs being bred um, in Canada originally with fishermen or by fishermen um, with work in mind. So these were dogs that had to be uh, they had to be quiet and calm while shipboard. And then come into drive and go to work to retrieve these fishermen's nets. Uh, and so they were a type of dog, like we've discussed in the past, not necessarily a breed, but just local dogs that lent themselves to that kind of work. And, uh, and that, to me, is what makes them so special today, is the fact that they have a pronounced on-off switch. And w- why uh, I think they are, number one popular, but very important, a very important breed, uh, to everybody and anybody considering kind of a general all around dog, why this should be probably your first option. Um, so, so there we go. We know, uh, originally that was their task to, to retrieve nets for fishermen and to chill out on the boat and be cool and easy to be around and not be in the way otherwise. Um, they were exported to the UK again, covered ad nauseum in uh in in hunting dog confidential podcast uh they they discuss the kennels uh, uh where they kind of became where they were first bred into distinct a distinct breed and into distinct lines um the type of shooting in the UK during that time kind of in the 1800s into the Victorian era uh is still somewhat done today the way it was then. And, and that type of shooting, and you notice I won't call it hunting, um, really is where the breed developed and, and, and kind of became a, a retrieving specialist. So we're either talking driven shooting or maybe walked up shooting. Um, but the, the Brits today still, or at least the diehards and, and the folks that, that I, you know, that I, listen to when they talk about what's going on over there. And, and I'm really talking about my friend, Robin Watson of tibia gun dogs, um, are, are very strict about how they use their dogs. They don't 
use them to flush game. They, they use them to retrieve game. And so they keep them at heel, uh, and they, and they walk the field up or the birds are driven to them and the, the dogs don't go to work until they're called upon to go to retrieve. They're steady. They're marking birds, marking game down. Um, but they're not used the same way we use them over here on upland game as a generalist. And, uh, and so, um, I, I'm not sure I, and I've used my dogs of British lineage to flush game and I do it consistently on and off all, all the time. Um, and they don't have any trouble with it, but it's just, I think it's important to note that that's not a part of their ta- their job description in, in England. Um, so over there, they were, they're used in what they would call wildfowling, hunting ducks. They're used in partridge and pheasant driven shooting. Uh, if, if when they're on a walked up shoot, a rabbit gets up, they'll shoot it. And the dogs are expected to retrieve that as well. Um, but I would say a little less emphasis on water work, not quite the hardcore waterfowling, uh, community that you find in the U S. Um, and, and that's one of the distinctions we'll get into a little bit further, but that's, that's in their history. And so, uh, you can go kind of further back and as far as that's concerned and, and find out more about the tradition of field trialing in the UK and kind of what that's led to. Um, we know that in the 19 kind of twenties and thirties, those dogs and, uh, and some of the trainers from over there kind of came back and popularized field trialing in America. And, uh, and so there, that's where I would think the U S UK divide began would be in the twenties and thirties with the evolution of, uh, of the sport of retriever field trialing in the U S and kind of the continuance of retriever field trialing in the UK. It's important to know also, and it's a really cool story in, um, in that hunting dog confidential, uh, about the Chesapeake Bay retriever. And so apparently, and I'm going to completely flub it because I didn't listen to it in preparation of this, but I'm kind of going off memory. It's been a few months since I listened to that podcast, but either a dog was shipped down there or for whatever reason, a ship was turned around on its way to the UK. Um, I could be completely making that up, uh, and ended up in the, in the Chesapeake Bay region and with some brood stock retrievers off of the St. John's water dogs and, that's where the lineage of the Chesapeake Bay Retriever retriever started. And so that's a purely North American dog did not go to England and then come back, um, influenced or, or the UK and come back influenced by that, that Labrador lineage. Now, whatever has happened between that time and this, um, I won't speculate at, I don't know. I, and maybe there has been some mixing of that lineage. And if there was not only would that be okay, I would, probably in my, in the way my brain works, encourage that, right? I think, um, it's an opportunity for me to express some of my disdain for modern (laughs) (laughs) purebred culture. Um, I think as long as you're breeding for performance, I would still rather be breeding for type than pure purity of blood. Um, so, you know, if I had a great Chessie and a great, uh, and a great lab and I felt like the COIs on both sides were a little tight, I think that'd be a cool outcross, but that's just me and, uh, whatever you guys think out there. Um, you know, I hope, I hope I don't offend too many sensibilities with that. It's just the way my brain works. Um, so, uh, again, you know, that if you, if you just, just go listen to 
Koshik and Wapinski talk about it. They're going to do a lot better job, but that's kind of the history. That's getting us to where we're starting this divide that I do want to continue about the American um, and the UK lines. Um, there, there's one man in particular that I found information on on the internet about by the name of Dave Elliott. He was a Scotsman uh, and a gamekeeper in the UK, and he was brought. And I, I have not gone too in-depth, and I don't want to speak out of turn, so I'm not going to mention who he worked for, even though I've got some ideas. I just wanted to leave that to you guys to do your own research, and I'm going to give you some references later to go find it. But Mr. Elliott uh, was among other um, important influences kind of early in the in the development of the American field trial game um, that came from the UK. And, and they, you know, they had in the 30s, uh, if you go to the AKC um, website and look up the history of retriever trials, uh, they'll do a discussion. The very first one in the U.S. was actually won by a Chessy, um, which which I thought was really cool, but apparently kind of was done in the style of of the British trials. So this was really before there was an Americanized stylistic field trial, and and Mr. Elliot is kind of credited with bringing a lot of the hand signal work that we see as a part of the modern retriever game. So whistle sit um, and handling our dogs the way we do it today kind of developed. He He's credited with the early development of that. And he brought that over um, as a, as a result of the area he came from in the sheepdog culture. So a lot of that, the handling techniques in the early retriever game were influenced heavily by the sheepdog culture and the, the way that sheepdogs were handled, apparently. Um, and, and so one thing I, w- I think is really cool about this, and I can really only, I've really only been influenced by the American lineage of trainers, but I recognize that it goes back to the UK and I think that's neat. Right. And, and it currently there's kind of a, uh, you know, everybody's got their own opinions. Some folks like British line dogs. Some folks like American line dogs for one reason or another. I think they both have strengths. And I think the weaknesses are not, not worth even discussing. I think, you know, it's what, what are you look? what strengths are you looking for? And you know where to go with them. But I think in regards to, um, what benefits you in the field, the, the weaknesses are very limited on both sides compared to the strengths when we're just talking about what we're selecting for. Um, and so it's just a matter of preference in regard to that. So continuing with the American lineage, um, we, we've discussed the trial systems a little bit, really the UK trial system, kind of where that started and where it's continued. There are, have certainly been, there's been progress uh, for better or worse in the UK. And I, I've, I've just seen and heard some, some light grumblings about um, lining becoming a little too important over there. And when I, when I say lining, what I mean is when you send a dog out on a, especially a blind retrieve, that they take a very straight line to the area you want them to go to, and then they break down and hunt. Whereas some of the older school folks that I've heard the grumblings from would prefer the dog actually be more independent in their hunt on the way out to the area, uh, where the game fell. Um, so it's, it's not 
when you, if you watch and I'll, and I'll give a plug to, if you go on YouTube and, and Google Paul French videos and the most recent I found was the, uh, IGL, which is the international gun dog league trial, which is the, uh, premier retriever event in the UK. Um, the IGL from 2019, there's a lot of footage from that. And you, so I think you'll see kind of, uh, and I, I'm not sure they had one. I don't think they had one in 2020 due to COVID. So that would be, I think the, the best place for you to see them in kind of modernity of British retriever trials. It's still a shot day where game is killed on the course. And, um, compared to what you may expect out of, uh, an American like master hunter or field trial dog, I don't think the, the handling is going to look quite as crisp to you, but it's still very crisp in my opinion. It's still, these dogs are handling at a high level and, uh, and they're very responsive to what's going on, which in my opinion is impressive considering in my, what I think the major difference between the UK and the American lines are is that, that, at least as far as anyone is willing to expose themselves to publicly, the, 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 the Brits train Amish. And when I say they train Amish, they train without the use of an e-collar. And that's the colloquial term in America. If I train without an e-collar, in my opinion, I'm training Amish. And so in, in the UK, um, you got, for the most part, a slip lead, and whatever retrieve items you're going to use. And and there's not much remote training where the handler's not walking out and handling the dog in the field. Also doesn't mean that they're purely positive. A hundred percent. Just because they don't use e-collars. Yeah. And that's a big, and, and getting, and what I want to, I do want to compare and contrast. So don't let me not compare and contrast training more generally okay. or when we get to it. Do you want to quickly cover, I know this is probably, you could, be pretty in depth, but quickly cover AKC field trials versus, um, hunt tests versus British field trials. Yeah, I'll I'll do my best guys. So understand this is coming from a non retriever player. So please, if you are a retriever guy out there, don't get offended by what (laughs) I say. Right. I mean, I've been around it enough. I've never competed in a, in a retriever field trial in, in America or otherwise I have, um, handled dogs and hunt test, uh, one to the senior level. Um, so that's very limited experience compared to the high level hobbyists out there and, uh, and, and the professionals out there. And so those guys get all the credit in the world. What they accomplished to put a, uh, a field champion on a dog in this country is an enormous accomplishment to put a master hunter title on a dog, uh, in this country is, I think is a very high level accomplishment. Um, and it's something that I have not done in either regard. So, um, I have had, uh, the great fortune to train, um, with some very, very talented, hardworking and experienced retriever trainers in America. And, and, um, I'll, I'll name, name drop a bit, I guess, but, uh, Craig Crook is, is been a direct influence. He was a gentleman that was, uh, or he is a gentleman that is now Andy Atar's, um, assistant and he had worked for Jim Van Ingen prior, um, but a phenomenal, phenomenal retriever trainer. And I kind of credit him with being, uh, being the biggest influence on me as far as retriever training is concerned, uh, f- followed very, very closely by a gentleman named Bob Messina, um, that I worked for 
in in a in another capacity um, that really taught me a, a, a pure a real comprehensive force program and he was a direct protege of Rex Carr and we're going to talk about Rex Carr in a bit when we get more into the training side uh, but when we when we talk about AKC retriever trials um, we need dogs that handle very very precisely on on blind retrieves and that can mark genetically very well and have enough experience to do that confidently so you're looking at marks up upwards of 300 yards in, uh, in American field trials. Um, and then the, I, I don't think I'm speaking out of place when I say that. I think some have been pushing further than that, but I'll, I'll, I'm confident in saying 300, um, blinds well over a hundred and, you know, and, and technical long blinds, a lot of terrain, a lot of water, um, uh, where the dog is expected to take a very, very clean and precise line. So if there's an obstacle in the way, the dog should continue their line through that obstacle, obstacle, whether they've got an angle entry on water, um, an angle exit an angle reentry, they need to just come straight in, straight out, whatever. If they need to go over a log jam, they do it straight over, um, and straight back as best they can. Um, and so it's a game of precision at great distance. Uh, and and the 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 work ethic required of the trainers at the top of that game i think is unsurpassed i um, agree yeah i don't i don't think i'll be honest with you i don't think there is um i don't think there's another dog sport that's that's quite like that and um I, there are when you think of like just the best dog trainers out there currently, the people that I think have the most influence, most, I think mostly probably protection trainers. Mm-hmm. I think there's a cool factor to those guys, but they're also like, they're very progressive and I think they deserve the credit they get for being the, the, the gurus today. So I'm thinking of the Balabanovs, the Ellis's, um, mm-hmm. the Dave Croyers of the world, the Bart Bellons of the world for me, Francis Metcalf, super cool. You know, those guys, they kind of, if they, if they're not currently competing in uh, protection sports, that's where they cut their teeth. And I know there are people in other fields that are, um, that, that are kind of leaders in the field, but those are people I really look to, uh, for, for my new ideas. Um, yet that doesn't, you don't see a whole lot of that out of the retriever game because it's very specific, but I would venture to say nobody works harder than a, than a professional retriever trainer in America. Um, I think of my buddy Craig, I know what he's doing every day right now. I know (laughs) what his day looks like. He's up before the sun, he's loading 20 dogs and he goes out and he grinds it out every day, putting them through the same setups over and over and over again. Not the same setups, but, but a lot of reps on very similar looking setups when it compared to something like a protection sport because it's all reflex and muscle memory. Like it's, and, and, uh, you know, and it, it's just, it's, I, I think it's deserving of a ton of respect. Um, cause it, I know what it takes for those guys to succeed and I don't want to do it. Like I have zero interest in uh in running other people's dogs uh in competition or um or in hunt test it, it namely retrievers i'll do it with some of the pointing dogs in some areas because i think talent 
that can carry those dogs a little further than they can in the retriever game. Now, that's not to say that, that, I mean, that there's not super, super talented retrievers. It's just, I think that the difference between the top 20 retrievers in the country and the top 20 Epaniel Bretons in the country (laughs) is, is completely different. Um, you know, and so, you know, there's the tens, I think, of thousands of dogs out there competing in American field trials. And, you know, that only one's going to win the national championship every year. That dog has to be supremely talented and he's got to be with a handler and a trainer uh, that knows what they're doing and puts in more work than everybody else. Yep. And that's that's impressive to me. So um, I, I, you know, I, I don't think, I don't think number one, anybody on the planet can touch an American retriever trainer at the top of the game for the use of a remote training collar um, at distance and to create precision the way they do. I don't, it's a completely different game, especially when we talk about creating variable speed and motivation in the field with the e-collar, the use of, and I'll say it here, negative reinforcement um, or punishment in the field remotely. It's a, it's a tough thing to do and they've mastered it. Um, So, so that's, you, you, in my opinion, again, uh, that's who you need to look to if you want to know about how to use the remote training collar remotely. Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't talk about AKC hunt test right. or British field <laughs> hunt test hunt test. And I'm not an authority hunt tests were created. I believe in the, I think in the early nineties, um, Nora, uh, being an early player, all of them kind of came around the same time. So the AKC hunt test game, Nora, I think kind of, there was some incestuous stuff there that kind of grew out of one another. And then HRC came in later, um, uh, and, uh, with a man, I think, and I know Bill Tarrant, Tarrant, Tarrant was, was an early player in the HRC, uh, craze. Essentially it came about because some hunters felt as if the retriever trial game was, uh, requiring the dog to become too mechanical, uh, maybe a little too robotic and, and not independent, capable of the independent thought that, uh, that they would like to see in their dogs. Um, and then even that, as that grew, the, the, the folks that created HRC were, were kind of doing it in response to the same thing happening within the hunt test game. Um, but the idea I think is just, it's something that what for me, where I think the hunt test game is important. Number one, there's pros playing it. And I'm glad there are pros playing it. I think a great hunt test dog is worthy of uh, of being in the gene pool. Um, and I would like to see, and I think the idea is maybe a little less emphasis put on top of the top of the pile drive and more put on um, an all-around dog capable of being a companion a hunting dog in, in all regards and, and capable and having testing nose testing, um, its ability to, to, to work a little more independently. So I think the game sometime gets, and I, I mean, this is an unfair critique as, as somebody that doesn't play it. Um, but I think the game tends to take too much importance sometime and, and what we're looking for, what we're selecting. And I think we always need to remember this in any game of whether we're playing protection sports whether we're playing retriever field trials, bird dog field trials, these games all developed as breed surveys 
Um, so we're testing brood stock. And I think it's important to remember that, you know, and so we need to uphold a standard, but at the same time, like, you know, as a judge that there should, even if you're judging to a standard, there should be a, always a layer of subjectivity that is, is this a good dog? Um, and sometimes that gets lost in the mechanics of the game. Um, but, and you know, that's, that's a, an, like I said, it's an unfair critique. Uh, I think again, you know, I have no problem looking to top level hunt test dogs with good reputations to breed to if I was, if I was in the right market. And I think, um, and we're going to get into the comparison and the contrasting of the UK and American stuff a little more in regards to this stuff. Um, and, uh, so I think we're going to, if you're just talking specifically, I know Nara still exists. It's really supposed to be uh, a game that does test a, a good all around hunting dog. I've never played it. I've never seen it. I know they've got some tracking exercises. I think they always have an upland exercise within it. Um, and I, I just don't know, but I know my good friend and also uh, a big influence on me, Ben Vallon, um, was involved in Nara, uh, and, and is told me a lot about it. And I, I know he likes it in regards to the development of a good hunting dog and, and keeping those genetics in the right place. Um, AKC hunt test, uh, probably the most popular game in the country right now. I, I would say, I know like people are filling up They're like, you can't get on entry express, which is how you enter one of these tests or hunt test secretary. And if, if a master test opens anywhere in this country, it's full within like minutes. So just super, super popular game. There's pros playing it. There's amateurs playing it. Um, and, uh, and you know, it, it, the dogs that are doing well at the highest level at the master and going to master nationals that, which is their like yearly event for dogs that pass a master qualification every year. Uh, you know, they're, they're awesome dogs. They're fantastic dogs and they're, then they deserve to be in the gene pool. Um, based on their performance anyway. HRC, I, I think is still, um, I don't, again, I've never, I've never run a dog in HRC. I just know what they build themselves at, which is for de- developed for hunters by hunters. And it's, it's supposed to kind of put a little less emphasis on precision, hopefully a little more on the ability of the dog to problem solve out there in the field. Um, less savvy handling is important is the idea. That being said, dogs at the highest level are being handled by quality, competent people. Um, you know, and I think it's a good, I think it's a good thing. I think it helps balance out the other hunt test games. And, um, I'm very excited and interested to see, you know, how you like it going into the fall of the year. So again, these are things that I haven't done personally. I've just been influenced by people. I've got a lot of friends that do it and I love labs and I love retrievers. So, um, but I, I mostly, for me, because so much of my time is taken up with pointing dogs, uh, retrievers are kind of, my retrievers are my hobby and they're fun and I enjoy, it's relaxing for me to be around them because I never have the pressure of how I'm going to perform at the next test or trial. Um, so, you know, it's kind of unfair to my, my pointing dogs that I love too. Um, the British game, uh, again, kind of all, everything is, is secondhand knowledge for me. Uh, but it is, they approach a trial. They have two types of trials over there for the retrievers. They have a, well, they have, never mind. They have multiple types of trials. They have open and novice. 
Um, but in both of those classes, they have a one-day trial, which has 12 dogs entered, and a two-day trial, which has 24 dogs entered. Um, and they go, it's a, essentially a day of shooting for them, right? So they go to an estate um, owned by a lord and lady normally, and it's a, when their, their shooting culture is, is like this, they go out and they have a nice day of field. It's a, a social event. Um, and the game they take is, uh, shared. They oftentimes can sell it at a pub in town still in certain areas. I think it's super cool. Their shooting culture, it's mostly going to be pin raised birds. You got to think though, they're living on a tiny island, and natural resources and their conservation model are they're completely different than our own. So they do have wild game. I know there's still a few partridge, um, supposedly in the wild there. Grouse up in the north of England and Scotland. Snipe is a big game bird for them in certain areas, and woodcock for sure. They have a, a really nice migration all over the uh, um, the British Isles of uh, Eurasian woodcock. Uh, which are a very, very popular game bird throughout the continent and uh, and the UK. Um, so, you know, they can be a part of those trials as well. Uh, but mostly we're looking at pinrace pheasant and pinrace partridge. And, of course, the the rabbits on the course not being pinraised. Um, the ones you'll see mostly if you're looking at the Paul French videos are going to be the walked up day. They get in a line. They walk across the field. They have some guns. They have the judges. They have some stewards. They have a gallery. And then they have the dog handlers. And as the game gets up, the dogs get an opportunity to make the retrieve. And so could be a super hard retrieve. It could be an easier retrieve. Um, I think the dogs that make those, those very hard retrieves, they kind of tend to stand out. So it's good to get them as long as you can make them, the hard ones. If your dog does not make one of those retrieves, there may be an opportunity for another dog behind you to come make that retrieve. And if he does, it eliminates your dog. And that's called an eye wipe. And I think that's a really neat kind of uh, function of that trial system. Again, I don't know a ton about the rules. I just know what I've watched and what I've heard from friends. But I think what's important about when you watch a UK trial versus when you watch an American trial is that that dog's expected to be in the field with the handler the whole time, walking at heel off lead with other dogs, with other dogs, watching other dogs retrieve, watching game, get up, watching game, be shot live game on the field where when you look at an American retriever trial or hunt test, that dog has a very limited time that it's out there. It's out there unless it's in a setup specifically geared towards honoring it doesn't have to honor and that would still be static not not on the move the way it's done in the walked up trials in in england or scotland or wales or ireland or wherever else over there right but it's so that that's that's the major difference it does require and i think it selects for a dog that is capable of managing drive where in america especially in the trial game like you know you're we want a dog that is just hanging on just enough by a thread. And I mean, I, I say it all the time and I love dogs like this, you know, within my own game, I want a dog on the edge, like on the edge of catastrophe, on the edge of disaster. It's exciting. And it's also the kind of dog that's going to make that impression on the judge with something spectacular and handle those biggest, biggest setups. So, you know, we select for those dogs on the edge in America and it, and 
there's a huge benefit to that. When you're looking at when we were in the detection dog game, which is where I was exposed to these, these great trainers, um, you know, uh, the dogs we were getting, a lot of them were field trial, not, I wouldn't call them washouts. They were just dogs that were not going to be at the top of the heap, but they were still awesome dogs with loads of go. A lot of them had a little too much go and they couldn't handle their line manners, couldn't tolerate any kind of impulse control. <laughs> and so, you know, our job was to kind of just rein them in enough to, to make them serviceable at what we needed them to do. But man, when you needed them to work, that's what they were capable of doing and doing it forever and doing it hard. Um, and never like their threshold for quitting was so high. It, It was amazing. And so, um, you know, I think some British dogs are capable of that when you've handled top of the chain, American dog, it's somebody that really appreciates raw drive. It's, it's, I, it's hard to find it. Maybe, maybe Malinois like that are comparable. They're different. So I don't, I don't think the comparison's super fair, but if you've handled, um, you know, a high level sport Malinois and a high level American field trial lab, there's a similar feeling to those two, two types of dogs. And, uh, and I get excited about it and I understand why other people do as well. I mean, they're awesome. This is not again, fair to say there are, also dogs I'm sure in the American field trial game with pronounced on off switches that are very capable of coming out of drive and being easy to be around being trainable in lower levels of drive being manageable. Um, it's not selected for in the game though, the way it is in the UK game. So it's not, it's not a shot at the American field trial game, but it obviously just makes them different. Objectively, yeah, objectively, it's just not selected for. In the UK, it absolutely is selected for. Um, if a dog whines in the UK, it's eliminated, you know? And and so I think there's probably a genetic component of that vocalization. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if you've been around dogs long enough, <laughs> I mean, we've seen it passed from one generation to the next. Um, so, you know, in compare to compare and contrast, I mean... Sure. Like it's, you know, are there specific lines of American field trial dogs with calm heads that are like fun to be around and great gun dogs and also great trial dogs? I guarantee you there are. And the guys that know those lines, I trust them. And I would hundred percent consider breeding to those dogs in, in the future in my program. I am not a diehard British dog guy, even though I'll, I'll come off that way sometimes because I'm breeding more for people like myself that are looking for a dog that's more tolerable to just be around and capable of doing good work, not dogs that are going to throw monsters all the time necessarily. Um, and so, we're, you know, we're speaking in generalizations. I recognize that. And I also recognize, uh, that there may be an American field trial dog or line of dogs that are what exactly what I'd be looking for. Um, and, and then when you get into hunt test, you're looking at, there's a spectrum to all this stuff, you know, and I think there's probably some hunt test dogs that have been strictly, you know, might have seven generations in HRC and no other game that could go up and do fine in American field trials, or it could be shipped overseas and do fine in a British retriever trial. I think there are dogs that are absolutely capable of making those transitions. And again, I think we're talking on a spectrum. Um, 
you know, that said, at some point you got to decide what you're going to breed to and what you, uh, prioritize as a breeder or as a trainer, as a handler, as a casual owner, you know, and if you're, you know, all we have to go on is our selection process. And that's what these trial, that's what these games are is a selection process. So we know that the Brits are selecting for, uh, for a lack of a better term, an on off switch. Yep. And so I would say if you're looking, if you're out there and you're thinking like, you know, what's the difference between a British dog and an American dog? That's my opinion. Um, it's not always going to hold true. I guarantee there are some psycho British dogs that I don't want anything to do with. And I guarantee there are some like dogs that are different and mellow and weird and nervy out of American field trial. And I'm not saying that's what they produce because that, that sometimes the Brits get a reputation for producing soft dogs, which mm-hmm. can border be borderline nervy, right. which is a problem for me because you know, and, and I, and I'll, and I recognize that I've seen some of those dogs come out of, out of the UK that way. I've also seen some dogs out of American lines that way. So I don't, I don't think anybody wants nervy dogs. I don't think anybody is selecting for nervy dogs. I think there could be potentially some softness issues in some British dogs just because they have to train with more finesse and the dogs have to be capable of being trained without a collar remotely. Um, which is a disadvantage in my opinion. The dogs that I train here are always going to be trained with a collar regardless of their lineage. So I'm looking for dogs that can stand up to training and I, and I'm looking if I'm going to UK lines, that's what I'm asking. I want to, I want a dog. I'm, I, I'm going to talk to the people that I know over there that I trust and say, Hey, can this dog handle pressure? And they know what I'm talking about and they're not trying to fool the population and they're, and I'm, I'm, I'll come back around to this, but there has been some, I think, unfortunate marketing of British dogs in this country that makes it seem like the Brits only train in roller based systems and right. that's malarkey, right? They're, they're, they can, there's, I'm sure, uh, that they can train with just as much pressure mechanically as any American. Um, so I don't want to waste all day on that. Kind of bring me back around. Where, where are we at here? I'd kind of got excited. Um, <laughs> We did get into trial systems, hunt test. Yep. Okay. Style of hunting. We talked about the styles of hunting. Again, Americans, um, a little more hardcore waterfowl enthusiasts, though the dog, there are plenty of dogs out there on the prairie being used in the pheasant lands and they're very popular. I think like if you look at the every man's dog in South Dakota, it's a lab mm-hmm. and that's, there's no, there's no place with the abundance of game like that place, you know, if it, it's perfect for a flushing dog yet still the lab out there is more popular than spaniels, um, or other fl- quote unquote flushing breeds where in the UK, you know, if you're the specialist at retrieving is, is the, is the retreat lab or the other retriever breeds. Uh, and they're really, there's not a, there's a tradition of not letting those dogs flush game for the gun where in America, those, those dogs are the most popular dogs for flushing game for the gun gun in, in the areas where it matters. Whereas the Spaniels are thought of as more of an all around dog. They're the UK's kind of versatile dog for folks that aren't into the HPR breeds, which is the, the pointing versatile pointing dogs over there, much smaller game than it is in here, that it is here or in the continent. Um, so they're, they're versatile dogs. They're more versatile dogs would be Springers first. And then I would say Cockers, are kind of lumped into that as well. Uh, but you'll see them out there picking up 
retrieving game as a part of a picking up team, but you'll also see them doing a lot more flushing than you will the labs. Um, where, you know, and there are plenty of Springers and Cockers in America and they're becoming more popular. Um, but still, you know, you go to Kansas, Nebraska, um, Iowa, uh, and South Dakota, North Dakota, Montana, your, your general farmer out there with one dog that goes out on his lunch hour and shoots a, 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 a limit of pheasants is most likely doing it behind a lab. Um, uh, man, I kind of, I've kind of bundled all this stuff up here. <laughs> Um, so as far as training is concerned, I've already mentioned that the Brits train Amish. When I say train Amish again, I'm simply talking about without the use of the e-collar. Um, when we think of the retrievers coming back to America and we've already mentioned Dave Elliott there, there's a story, um, and there's a book that was written by a friend of mine named Bobby George, he was my boss at, at the place where I trained detection dogs as well, where I, I, I learned from Ben Vallon, Craig Crook, and Bob Messina. Bobby was a, um, he was a senior trainer there early. He spent less time hands-on with me in the field, but had a lot of training discussions with him. And I, uh, I really admired him. And uh, he passed away, unfortunately, um, too young, uh, I believe last year, I think we're only a year out. I may be, I may be, it may be further away than that, but, um, but Bobby was a, he was a, a top notch retriever trainer. He worked for Bill Eckett, um, for a long time. He also worked out on his own for quite a while. Uh, he was a, a brilliant man and he, and he could, he had the gift of gab. He could really communicate well and kind of, talking with him from my perspective, he was willing to listen to me and that was something I appreciated greatly, but he also was very good at kind of articulating, uh, the retriever stuff to me in a, in a way that I could understand it. Um, but Bobby was mentored early in his life as a retriever trainer by a gentleman named Cotton Pershaw and Cotton Pershaw, um, had a very long history as a very successful retriever trainer through the era in which the American game took on its own identity. And so he had an early influence from Dave Elliott. He was the kennel boy uh, of a gentleman that sent him to learn from Dave Elliott. So we're talking about essentially the person that brought the game to this country, Mr. Elliott, training Mr. Pershaw, who went on to mentor my friend Bobby, and I feel grateful beyond words to feel like I had mentorship from Bobby, this direct lineage back to the beginning of the retriever game, even though admittedly I'm not a retriever man. Um, in the, in the, in the sense that we're thinking of it as a professional. So, um, I, I don't want to get you, if you want to understand the Americanization of the game, it's pretty, you can go down the rabbit hole. Uh, there is a, um, a website called Retriever Training Forum that's been around a long time. They have a, an enormous archive, and there are some very influential people on there that have written quite a few things. So go to the show notes. I've given a link to the Retriever Training Forum. Um, I actually didn't. Just Google it and use the search function. Some things i got to give you guys enough credit for <laughs> for being smart enough to do. Art Retriever tra- Trainer Forum, search function, 
Dave Elliott, Cotton Pershaw, History, Rex Carr. It, look those names up and you're going to find some awesome threads on those guys. So I, I mentioned Rex Carr and I've mentioned him prior. He is is kind of credited with bringing the retriever game to where it is today. So in the 60s, he he also was not a pro handler. He was a more of a coach. So people went to him. A lot of amateurs would go to Rex Carr to be taught how to handle their own dog as the dog was trained. And I thought, I, and I, I think he was way ahead of his time in that regard. Um, and, and there's still a, there, because he had so much contact with so many people, that's where his real influence is. I think had he just been a brilliant trainer that wrote maybe a few articles and some books and stuff, I don't think he would have had the impact that he ended up having as a trainer of trainers. So a lot of the great pros of the 80s and 90s into today have a direct link to Rex Carr. And Rex Carr really came along at a time where we had the e-collar was coming, becoming a, 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 a staple um, training device. So a lot of his work informed the way we use that now. Through the, and when you think of modern force programs, most of them go back to Rex Carr um, and a lot of these drills that we use. Uh, he he kind of left his notes. I mean, and that was the thing. Rex Carr's notes you'll hear people talk about. And you can go back. There's that one YouTube video of, of Rex Carr and Dave Roram um, doing a seminar. And it's worth looking at for no other reason than posterity's sake. So, but again... You know, I could sit here, we could do an entire podcast on Rex Carr, and I don't even know that much, but I would love to talk to more folks about him. He he had, he was obviously not only brilliant, but connected with people on a very deep level. And I don't think there, I don't think there's a more pure legacy in any, right now, maybe any game. I could be wrong. I don't know. But Rex Carr is, is kind of the, uh, the patriarch of modern retriever training, in my opinion. And people may disagree, but that's kind of the consensus as far as the people I've spoke to. Talked about flushing and, and spaniel test. So as far as we're going on and on, and I've kind of spun myself up here a few times, but that the training, and and it's not even worth mentioning training as far as Upland is concerned with, with labs anyway. You can do everything from being a meat dog to training them as you would a spaniel. Um you know, but go out there and put them in game and shoot it for them. And you maybe lab. we could talk a little bit about how we use labs in front of pointing dogs, because I feel like there's so much value in that, especially for our pointing dogs that, um, yep. and you know, maybe I also want to mention that <laughs> I know you feel this way too, but if people get hung up and they have to have like a certain breed and like you're the EB person and I'm the short hair person yeah. and neither of us want to be those things. I know. I know. There's nothing wrong with having a pointing dog in a lab. I think that's the coolest thing ever. And I can't imagine having one without the other now that I have both. Yeah. 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 I mean, they both are very important to me, right? So my, my EBs and I, and not my EBs. The reason I have them is because I wanted a companion gun dog pointing dog. And in the ones that I breed, I'm that's a high on my priority list is that they be engaging and like have an off switch and be mellow, be it somewhat pleasant to be around. That said, they can't compete. There's not a single pointing dog I've ever been in the presence of that can compete 
especially with Althea in yeah. regards to just general companionship. Yep. And, and, and it's a hard, it's very subjective and a lot of different points to discuss when we talk about what makes a great companion. But what I'll say about Althea and what makes her a very special dog to me, especially somebody that may be guiding or training other dogs is that she can always be there and she can assert herself into the situation even without me inviting her. And it's always right. Um, and when it's not, I can fix it immediately. Uh, you don't notice her until you're ready to notice her. She's never a pain in the ass to be around. She's always a pleasant dog to be in the presence of. Um, I don't ever have to think, is she on the other side of the farm (laughs) finding birds? Whereas if I were to turn out my sweetest girl ever, Ella, who's my house dog, if I turn her out and I just go sit on, if I go fire up the grill, which I'm about to do in like an hour, and I just turn Ella out into my yard... Her and Blitz would be Yeah, they'd be state. like, yeah, they'd be out on the <laughs> creek, right? Like they'd be digging it, digging every bird that's still left on this farm out, you know, and do it, eating <laughs> shit of some sort, you know, rolling in it. And she would come back eventually. She would have had an adventure and she'd come back. On her own no, time. No worse for the wear other than whatever she'd be wearing would stink. And uh, yeah, and it would be on her own time where if I turn out the out, she just like kind of goes, finds a shady spot and curls up and goes to sleep until I'm like, Till I go somewhere else. And yeah. she's just, just kind of like my shadow and I never notice her until I'm ready to, to use her. And it's the moment that I call her into the game, she is there and ready to go, yep. especially when it comes to bird work. Yep. And I use her primarily at heel to flush for my pointing dogs and to retrieve in most scenarios. For broke dogs. Yep, for broke dogs. Because the reason I do that is because I break most of the pointing dogs I have out, and if you go back to the pointing dog episode, you're going to understand what I'm talking about when I say break them out. The, that dog, if they can sit there and tolerate another dog coming in, flushing the bird and retrieving it in front of them, in front of them, and they still are engaged and want to be in the game, that's a dog that is dependable. That's a dog that I can hunt in a brace, and, no, and if the other brace mate messes up, that dog is going to stay cool. Right. And so Althea puts them in that scenario every time I pull her out. So all my broke dogs watch Althea flush birds and retrieve birds over and over and over again. And so when it comes time to go to field trial with them or a hunt test with them, they don't have a problem when their brace mate rips a point. They don't have a problem when their base brace mate busts the bird or breaks and retrieves the bird when they should be honoring because Althea is doing that to them every day. Mm-hmm. Um, even though she's completely controllable, but that's her job for me. And also we use her all the time, um, the same way we use Ember now to build drive in our puppies. So create friendly competition, create friendly competition. She's a dog that's so socially appropriate that she can compete with a dog over a bird, but will never challenge them to the point of a fight or Mm -hmm. to the point of intimidating the other dog. Um, that dog, if they really want to steal that bird from Althea, she's going to let them. And that's fine, right? But I can create, and I'm using her to get those other dogs into something. And then, of course, whenever we have just an errant bird get away from us, I just <laughs> blow the whistle a few times. Althea bails out of the truck on her own, goes and gets the bird, brings it to me, and goes and hops back in the truck. Althea's definitely earned her yeah. keep around here. There's no other dog that <laughs> saves us as much money as she does. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, and I mean, it sounds like, I mean, I'm blowing 
smoke up my dog's ass. I'm not. She, this is who she is. This yeah. is really what she does. She's a great dog. She's a great family companion. She tolerates my kid being inappropriate with her when he shouldn't be. And I'm trying to train him not to be. Um, but I can always, you know, as much as you can ever trust any dog, I trust her. Um, and you shouldn't even Althea, I shouldn't trust, you know, but I try to use her to, to teach him how to be appropriate. And so, um, she is my ideal companion gun dog. And, uh, she's not the perfect dog. I wish she had a little more environmental stability. She's a little, and I mean, when I say a little, it never gets in the way of anything I need from a work perspective from her. Um, but it's noticeable. And so it's something that you having her in my lines moving forward. I know that that's something that I want to correct, but she's also proven to me that she's very worthy of being in the gene pool based on every other attribute she has. And so that. And it, as, as a breeder, which I'm, I'm not, I don't even like the term, to be honest with you. I, I, but I look down the road, and when I think of genetically, I want more dogs like her me available too. to me and to people <laughs> and to people I like. So, um, you know, but there, she's not, she, she's not without holes. So that's that's Althea. That's kind of getting into my I, experience. Yeah, and that's why I ended up with Ember too, because I have such an appreciation for Althea and very much like you're pointing dogs. Obviously Blitz is, as we spoke about earlier, one of those dogs that's always on the edge of just coming completely unglued. And I love that about her and I would never change that about her. But what I've come to begrudgingly accept is that there are some holes in my life that I would like for her to fill that she will never enjoyably fill, which is Riding shotgun in my car, absolutely hates it. Going to breweries and restaurants, I she could not be more miserable sitting there, tr- being still. Absolutely hates laying down on concrete. Like you know, she doesn't enjoy those things, and so I've come to accept that she is absolutely the bird dog I want. She's not quite the companion that I want, and that's okay. And she would much rather be happier staying home, and that's what I have Ember for. Who can go be a bird dog and can also hang out at the coffee shop and brewery and ride shotgun. And she's just happy to do whatever. And it's so cool to have both of those dogs and see how they complement each other too. It's a a great point. Yeah. I mean, that's what Alf, you know, Althea has been to me. I had, um, in my twenties, I had a Malinois that was my constant companion and I haven't had a dog fill her role until Althea. And that's not taking anything away from my other dogs, especially Ella, who is, I mean, is absolutely, uh, is my EB female and I love her and I'll take her anywhere happily. She's still always in the back of her mind. Yeah. In the back of her mind, she's always out in the field somewhere. And if I'm not vigilant, she'll Mm -hmm. be out there physically. (laughs) You know what I mean? Where, where Lacey, that was never her problem. She was always very engaged. She was trustworthy. She did not act out on her own, but there was all, she was always controlling her impulse to kick somebody's ass. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, or a dog, another dog's ass or whatever, you know, and that's never been a concern with Althea. And that's been a relief for me. And, and as a younger man with a little more testosterone, I, there, you know, I, that kind of attracted me to protection sport and the Malinois in general and 
owning Lacey taught me um, that I, and I think I've said this on the podcast before, that I would much rather put myself in danger trying to protect my dog than I would ask my dog to put themselves in danger <laughs> trying to protect me. And it just, I learned that about who I was, especially with her, because she, she was all I had for 10 years of my life. I mean, it was just her and I traipsing around the globe, eating pizza and Vienna sausages together, right? <laughs> and so like, you know, I, I learned that I was not the kind of person that needed a per- personal, prote- or that wanted a personal protection dog. Um, I, I would much rather have the companionship. Uh, and having one that barks at the door is great, you know, and any of them can do that. But in terms of, you know, being personally protected by my dog, it's not something I want. Now that I got a family, I could see maybe in a little more of an argument for something like that, but not still not really for me. So it's nice having like that dog that I know is like, it's only a threat to roll over and get beat up by another dog. <laughs> right. She is a, a purely and submissive I know, dog. I know that labs get quite a bad rep for... I mean, at least with um, when I think of like other trainers and sport people for being easy, people yeah. want a challenging dog. And I think that's kind of misconstrued a little bit because labs are easy. Like, don't get me wrong. It's but it's awesome. Like that is what's so cool about them is that they're easy. And that doesn't mean that they're boring or that they're stupid. It means that you can do a million things with them and they will love all a million things and they will give all a million things 100 percent effort. And so when I hear people say, oh, you know, it's just a lab, they're so easy or whatever, it, 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 um, I don't think they understand how awesome easy is to have a dog that will do anything and everything, get along with everyone and still give you, like you talked about that borderline Malinois effort, but you don't have to worry about them fighting your other dogs or beating up on your kids or <laughs> managing them or Oh, it's just, it's nice. It's so nice to have easy. With the disclaimer that easy comes with good breeding. Yes. And that's the thing we always have to acknowledge is that there's so many labs out there. You still, you can't be complacent looking for one. Yes. And a lab is not a lab is not a lab necessarily. That's all dogs though. Yeah, it is. It is. And there's plenty of, unfortunately, more crap Malinois out there today than there were when I, when I first got into that breed. Um, But yeah, you said it right. And I think for professional trainers out there, if you're a professional pet trainer, like- why would you have anything but <laughs> a great no brainer, right? Like, yeah, I mean, we're looking, it is what makes it a great dog. It's like, and, and my friend Ricky Elston of Southern Tide Kennels in, uh, in Mississippi now, and if you're in, if you're in kind of that Mississippi Delta area and you're looking for a great trainer, that's your man. Um, uh, Ricky is, this guy, and I've said it before on the thing on the podcast, but the best work ethic of anyone I've ever known in the game. And I trust him wholeheartedly. He would have my dog, but he said to me and he convinced me, we used to tussle about this. And I mean, and I can, he's, he is my great friend and I never considered him anything otherwise, but he became my great friend because he endeared himself to me because he was always willing to like meet me in a bit of an argument about (laughs) things. And, uh, and he convinced me, I mean, he told me, uh, a lab is the most versatile dog on the planet. I remember the day he said it to me and I thought, what a pompous ass thing to say, <laughs> <laughs> but he was a hundred percent right. And, uh, and he, he's been a big part of the influence, big part of the reason I, you know, I'm, I'm so high on the breed and the type, um, ahead of the breed. Um, you know, and, and we're getting a little close to kind of wrapping up and we've been going kind of long. um, one thing I did want to mention and I wanted to talk about, you guys, please check out the references in the show notes. Uh, one in particular 
is a book by a man named Mike Gould uh, called The Labrador Shooting Dog. I, I thought about reaching out to Mike Gould. He's kind of retired and kind of gotten out of dogs, it looks like, from from outside appearances. So I didn't want – I really didn't want to um, bother him with it, to be honest. I, re- I read his book, which was The Labrador Shooting Dog, uh, thanks to a, a listener – Landon Lovell, who's been very engaging with us. And, and so thank you very much, Landon. Uh, I will probably still go into greater detail on this book in the future. I considered doing a a complete book report on it. Um, but I didn't, I don't want to come off. It's, it's, I'm thinking like when I, when I started looking at what a book report really is, it's not fair to not review it. And I don't want to be critical of it. There are some places I really diverged with Mr. Gould and certain things. And one of the things was he kind of disparaged field trials a lot in in the book. Um, that's not to say that everything else he said in that book wasn't brilliant and spot on because it was. I really, really liked the book. And I thought if you, if you wanted to make a great all-around dog, uh, that book would be a fantastic guide, place to start. And I've actually recommended it to... Uh, to, to some puppy buyers and to friends. And I highly recommend it to anybody else interested in kind of having a general purpose gun dog and, and with a lab, which I think is the breed you should be looking towards. If you want a general purpose gun dog or general purpose, any dog for that matter. Um, uh, the, uh, um, the Labrador shooting dog by Mike Gould is your book. And so Mr. Gould, uh, Amish trainer, doesn't didn't train with e-collars um again kind of just put himself at odds with the field trial community a bit in there but used field trial blood and so i thought that was kind of cool and it says a lot for the american field trial game that it can still select for a dog that's capable of being trained in an amish style and i I use that colloquially it's not that there's a bunch of Amish dog trainers out there. <laughs> it's just, it's a term that it's hard for my, my mouth not to say it, um, but without the collar, he he had some neat, uh, I think like just from neat devices that he used. He did use like a pinch collar the way we use in the, in the bird dogs, but he also used it with like a lever uh, and a fulcrum type setup with a, with a bar. It's hard to need to go read the book. So I highly recommend get the book. If you've got a passing interest and hunting with your lab. Uh, this would probably be at the top of my list, like as a book that I think you're going to get a lot out of. And what he gets into is wild birds. Like he talks a lot about he'll pin raise birds, wild birds, how to like, how to interact with your puppy, how to train. Technically it's a good, good like program book. And also if you can just lay off the like negative stuff, um, it's, I think it's also a great philosophy book and it's not, it's not dominated by the negative stuff. It just, it needles me, man. That's, I've always hated that. Like the field trial game is so important. I don't play it, but I recognize its importance. I recognize the importance of having the British game. I recognize the importance of having the American game. Like I need them both to have the dog I want. Right. And I do. And I want, you know, one day I, you know, I've got in my brain, like you breed down one line a little bit tight, you breed down another line a little bit tight and that's your perfect outcross. You get what you, mm-hmm. you fill in the gaps with those kind of things. And it's important to have that. And it's important that we don't get in our camps and separate the breed, which is going to put me at odds with a lot of the people in my French Brittany fan, you know, friend, friend group. Right. And, but I, I think we, we need to guard and protect 
genetic diversity in this day and age. And it's a, that's a great place that we have it. And I think that both of those selection processes have something to offer each other in the middle. And, um, and hunters are going to be the beneficiaries that they they truly are. Mm-hmm. If you are a, a duck hunter an upland hunter, um, want to track deer blood trail, you want to cop your cop that wants a great narc dog or bomb dog or whatever. This is your breed. And it's for that reason that it's so prolific and it's got so many people trying to make great dogs in it. Um, so again, uh, you know, not again, that's not a knock on Mr. Gould. Uh, please read that book. It, it, it did. It's, it's, I think a fantastic read. Um, uh, training retrievers, the cotton per shawl method is also in the references. That was the book written by, by my friend, Bobby George. Um, it's out of print. And I'm sure the Labrador shooting dog is to a lot of these old sporting books get out of print. You can, sometimes you can find them for a decent price on Amazon. Sometimes you're going to get find people gouging price gouging on Amazon. So like if you see it and it looks ridiculous, don't buy it, <laughs> you know, but I, I, you know, I hope that there's a resurgence call write The publisher, I might talk to some, some other publishers and see if they're willing to, um, to put some of the, run another print on some of these books because they're so important and we don't want to lose them. Um, you know, and, and then this internet age, like we, we need, this is, we forget that, you know, prior to 15, 20 years ago, man, everything was on paper somewhere and we don't want to lose that. Uh, we don't want to throw our history away. So go back and I'm, there's, I'm sure there's a ton more books, but that Cotton Pershaw's story is so fascinating. It's such an important figure in, in our history as trainers and, and enthusiasts, um, and Bobby did such a beautiful job of, of telling that story. Uh, go find that book and buy it. Um, and then I wanted to talk a lot about Rex Carr. And I was like, it was hard for me not to, because I just think that the le- there's a legend and also a real history. And it's important for everyone to know. I'm a big believer in like, and, and propping up those that came before us and, and recognizing their, you know, contributions to what we are today. Uh, and Rex Carr is such an important figure. What I did find and I thought was really cool was a 1967 sports illustrated article on super chief who, uh, I believe was an AFC FC back then or whatever the equivalent is really neat story about his owner and handler and, uh, and Rex Carr. And that was, I don't know enough to say if that was his super early days, but early enough in his career that he had a lot of career behind that. Um, so, and, but just a neat write up on who he was, go to the retriever training forum and hit that search search function. And then I did put one, uh, link to, uh, an AKC page up there and it's a, a field trials history, um, as told on their site and it's brief, but I think it, it did a good, it did, it was good and it was right. So, um, you got anything else for us on, on this topic, Emily? I mean, it's, I know it's something you've really jumped into headfirst and I, I hate that. I just kind of stole, <laughs> stole a show on this one. Um, I'm, I'm so excited to see all the stuff you're doing. Uh, and I don't want to just get high on retrievers, but I think, man, for anybody out there that's doing protection sports or training pointing dogs or training any other type of dog, you owe it to yourself to go hang out and train some labs with somebody somewhere. Yep. Absolutely. Um, guys, speaking of labs, we, I, I did breed one of the females I own that is, 
it, I own her on paper. She's actually owned by uh, a young man that used to work for me. He's a good dude and he's my best friend's little brother and he's a duck hunter and he gives her a great life. Um, and we're going to, we, we bred her to Logan Sheets's Rudy, uh, timber talent, who's a field trial winner. Um, and a grandson of my friend Robin's, uh, um, minnow, minnow. I'm sorry. I'm trying to bracken, bracken bird minnow known as Noah. And now I'm thinking he's a son. No, no, he's a grandson. grandson. That's right, grandson. Okay, sorry, and I got, got myself Rudy a little turned around. Ember's dad, sire. Yep. So Rudy's Ember's dad. We know, and that and the reason I used him really is because I, all the pups I've seen out of him are, are awesome, fantastic. Like what we talked about in terms of st- environmental stability, but really like on-off switch, mellow, easy to be around, and when they come in to drive, more than enough effort. And 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 they also have like this thing with like stamina and hunt mm-hmm. that I think sets them apart a little bit too. Is like, man, when they really get to looking for something with their nose, they don't, they're, they don't get dependent on their eyes easily and things like that. A lot of fun to, to teach or put in situations to become great hunting type dogs. Um, so we used Rudy, uh, Lucy is the daughter of a dog named Johnny Walker, Tibia, Johnny Walker, um, who is a, uh, a son of uh, Brackenbird Minnow. So it ends up being a 3-3 breeding, line breeding on Brackenbird Minnow. Then, and knowing Robin and knowing the special dog he was, I'm happy to make that line breeding. It's not a, a line that's super well represented in this country. Um, and so uh, I expect, hopefully, We'll produce a bunch of little Brackenburn minnows is what you want to do with a breeding like that. So if you're interested, give me a shout. Um, that litter is due mid to late October of 2021. Puppies will be ready to go home before Christmas. Um, but really, I made that breeding because I think it's going to produce phenomenal pups. So. I agree. I'm super excited about it. All right, guys, thank you very much for listening. I know we went long on this one. Hopefully it was bearable to some degree. Um Check out www.losthighwaykennels.com. The events page is looking a little sparse right now, but it's about to get uh, wide open. (laughs) And uh, I'm going to try and put some group events on this fall. I'm looking for Saturdays. I can't find them, to be honest. But we're going to do two Wednesday nights a month. And uh, I'm going to attempt to find a Saturday every month. So three events, be a group lesson set up, but I'm hoping it has kind of that club feel. I know we've talked about it in the past. If you're local, if you're close enough to break away and get to one of these and you know, I hope that I make it worth it for you. And I hope if we can get one on a Saturday, it's a fun day. We cook something on the grill, we train and we just uh, enjoy each other's company and hopefully uh, spread the good word um, on dog training. Emily, thank you very much for being here today. I can't, I cannot do this without you. I've tried. Um, so (laughs) I guess once, if you ever split these could just get, they're done. So, and anything you want to pass on the way out? If anyone ever wants to talk about labs with me, I need some more lab friends. So (laughs) feel free to reach out. Thanks guys. We'll, uh, We'll talk to you next time. Hey everyone, 
This is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.